65% of American adults claim to be born-again Christians. 65%. It's actually down 12% over the past decade. Surveys show, however, that there is little difference between the life of Christians today and the life that they had before they came a Christians, before they came a Christian, before they were converted. In fact, illegal drug use and marital infidelity still doubles in people who say they know Jesus. Driving while intoxicated triples for people who say that they know Jesus. Divorce rate is higher within the church than it is outside the church. And whatever you may think about these statistics, of of course, non-Christians don't get married as often as Christians. Whatever you might think of these statistics, let that resonate. The sinfulness of people who claim to know Jesus typically increases in Americans. Born-again Christians who say that they have had a life change, that God has revealed to them their sin and misery, that God has enlightened their minds and the knowledge of Christ through faith, taking away their heart of stone, renewing their wills, this almighty God has brought them close to Christ. These Christians continue to partake in illegal drugs have marital affairs and drive while they're intoxicated. Right, the next question is obvious. How can this be? Where's where's the disconnect? Where's the life change, the heart change? Where's the moral change that we see Scripture call Christians to? I've got bad news. I'm not going to answer that question today. Because whatever the cause, whatever that answer might be, we don't have to look very far to see it in our own hearts. Right? Maybe it's not marriage infidelity. Maybe it's not drug addiction. Maybe it's not driving while intoxicated. But we don't have to look very far within our own experiences, within our own hearts, to see that there's a difference between what we say and what we do. In our own lives, we are convinced of something in our heart, but then we don't do it. And so we have to ask ourselves two questions. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe that everyone stands condemned before God because of our own sin and because he is so holy and our sin is so great that we deserve his damnation, his eternal wrath? But yet we have had faith in Jesus and he now looks at us and no longer sees our unrighteousness, but the righteousness of 
Christ, that he has pardoned our sins, that he has clothed us with the robes of majesty that belong to Jesus. It is because of Jesus our sins have been pardoned. It is because of Jesus we are forgiven. Not because anything that we have done, not even because we have believed, but because of the one we believe in. If you identify as a Christian, as we, as we should, right? We're the church gathered together. Yes, this is what we believe. This is what the scriptures teach us is the only way to salvation. So the next question, why do our lives not reveal what we believe? Why do our works not witness to this grace Great grace that we have found in Jesus. This morning we come to Ezra 7, and we are beginning a new chapter. Yes, of course, Ezra 7, 1 is a new chapter. But the first part of Ezra, Ezra 1 to 6, we have seen God call his people to rebuild a new temple. The center of who they were the center of their religion, the center of everything they did, because in the temple, that is where God dwelt among his people. But we saw at the end of chapter 6, they've built the temple. And so in chapters 7 to 10, we are now seeing God reconstruct his people as the people of God founded upon the law. Of God. This will be the theme for the rest of Ezra, all the way to chapter 10. God is reconstructing his people to be who they were supposed to be. And the people of God find out who they are supposed to be through the law of God. Because it is in the law of God that God not only tells us what we should do, how we should live, what we should believe, but the law reveals to us the lawgiver. The reason we are supposed to do what the law commands is because the law makes us look like God himself, and we are his image bearers. When the world looks at us, we should reflect the one who has created us. This is our call in this world. But there's a problem. And what we find in this new section of Ezra is that the people under their own power cannot do what God has asked them to do. And this is the problem that we share with them. We cannot fulfill what the law demands of us. But what we see in this passage, what we see in this new chapter, and what we see in our own lives is that God does not leave us, but he is faithful and he sends help. He sends someone to lead. He sends someone to teach. He even sends someone to love his people in their sin. 
And just like we need someone to help us follow and obey in Ezra's day, they needed, the people of God needed someone to help them follow and obey, and God sent them Ezra. I don't know if you've realized, we're in chapter 7 of Ezra, and this is the first time he's mentioned. Who is this Ezra? We, at this point, we literally don't know anything about him. And I don't know if, if, if you, you've realized this, but we've covered a lot of history, right? So Israel was in Babylon after the exile, Ezra 1. After 70 years, they came back. But you, you might not catch this, but when you read this first verse, now after this, this is um, Ezra's shorthand for half a century has passed. Between 622 and 7-1, 57 years have passed. And we find out who Ezra is. He's the son of Sariah. The son of Azariah. And I don't know if you guys thought of this, but as Blake started reading those, did you have the memory of him reading back through chapter 2 of the 70 verses of names? We don't have 70 verses of names, just, just five. But we, we, we see Ezra's lineage. In, in verses 1 through 6, we see Ezra's line. And in verses 7 through 10, we see Ezra's life. And here in verses 1 through 6, we see Ezra's line of who he is. What questions do you ask someone new when you first met them? Right? We, we have three questions, typically. If you have more than three, kudos to you. But we have three. What's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do? Right? These are the three go-to questions when we're, we're meeting someone. If you're a student, it's not what do you do, it's where do you go to school. So there's still just, just three questions. I don't know how Ezra knew this, but he answers these three questions for us. We have Ezra's name. He's Ezra. His great, 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 great grandfather is Aaron. So Ezra gives us a little bit more. He's that guy. He's, you ask him their name, you're like, oh, I'm so-and-so. I'm, these are my parents. These are my grandparents. These are my, my great-grandparents. He gives us a little bit more than what we ask. And then he, he name drops, right? Yeah, Aaron. He's my great-grandfather. You know, the brother of Moses. And then he answers the second question in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. So Ezra is not like Daniel, where he was born in Israel and moved into captivity. No, Ezra is born in Babylon. He is an Israelite who was born and raised in Babylonia. It is this Ezra who came from Babylon back to the promised land. So he's answered the first two questions, who he is, where he's from, and then he tells us what work he has done in the second part of verse 6. He is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now a scribe is a term applied to a Persian administrative official. 
as many of you in here, he was a lawyer. He was a diplomat. He was someone important. And I don't know if you caught it, but he name dropped again. Oh, yeah, I, I'm the son of I'm the grand, great grandson of Aaron, you know, the, the brother to Moses. And I work for the king. He establishes his identity. He, rem- he reminds his readers who he is. And as good readers of the text, what should we always do when we find a new character in the text? We should ask questions, right? Who is this Ezra? How is he going to change the story? Is this someone we should trust? Is this not someone that we should trust? But what is Ezra doing here? Why does Ezra give us all this information about himself? I want you in your Bibles to turn back just a page. If you have a pew Bible, we're turning to page 390. And in chapter 2, we have the people returning out of Babylon. They're returning to Jerusalem, and we have this full list. But in verse 59, we actually come to a pretty big problem. In verse 59, um, the, 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 the following were those who came up from Tilnaal and Telhassar, Sherub, Aden, and Emar, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So to come back from Babylonia to Jerusalem, you had to be able to prove in what line you belonged. Now go with me down to verse 61. Also of the sons of the priests. And then go down to verse 62. These sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but there was none found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. You see, Ezra was a priest as he was a scribe. He had to give a definite line of who he was. Ezra's line is impeachable. He's the who-who, right? He's the one that everyone in Fayette County wishes that they were related to. He's, he's that guy, Right? Why is this important? Because it is important. The person of Ezra is very important. But what these first six six verses actually teach us isn't about Ezra at all, but about the faithfulness of God. Nothing in these first six verses actually tell us anything that Ezra accomplished for himself, even the work that he did. The work that he did, he did because the hand of the Lord was upon him. You didn't earn your lineage. God's favor put you in the house that you were born. This passage reveals to us God's faithfulness to all generations and that God is faithful to raise up leaders who teach the word of God. This passage reveals to us that God has done and said what he had promised, that the steadfast love of the Lord is for all those who fear him and for their children and for their children's children. So let me ask you a question. 
Are you fearful for your children because you're afraid that you have or that you will fail them? Are you fearful about your future because you're afraid of turning into your parents? Are you fearful that because you've come from a broken home or because of your sin or the sin of another, that God will not be faithful to you? Perhaps you feel or that you wish you came from a more significant line. Are you fearful that your children or your grandchildren will become a statistic of those who say they know Jesus, but they really don't? God is faithful to his people and to the generations. We must ask ourselves, are we doing what God has called us to do? Are we teaching our children and our grandchildren or even the children of this church that their only hope in life and in death is Jesus? Are we exemplifying what it looks like to hate our sin, to ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation when we've wronged somebody, and to seek reconciliation when we've been wronged by somebody? Are we teaching the next generation, even the children of others, a heritage that is built upon the grace of God? Ezra was blessed because Ezra had parents and grandparents and great-grandparents men and women who taught him the will of God as it's revealed in the scriptures. This is a grace of God. This is God being faithful throughout the generations. Ezra was shaped and formed through the sovereign hand of God at the, in the line that he was placed in, in the household he was born in. And his parents did what Deuteronomy 6 tells them to do. Teach them the rules and the laws and the commands of God. To talk about it as they walk. To talk about it as they lie down. To talk about it around the table. That the Lord is one and the Lord loves them. Do you want to, your family line to be like Ezra's family line? Like his family tree? Teach your children the word of God. Pray with your children the word of God. Sing with your children the word of God. I don't know if you know this, but that is what we do here. We are people founded upon the word of God because that is where our hope lies. Because in the law of God is where we find God himself. This is the heritage we are called to leave. And the future of our children depend upon it. If you're not doing this, everyone breathe. There's good news. 
because Christ can change your heritage. He has set you on a new path. He has led you to new life. By faith, we become children of Abraham. By faith, we are sons and daughters of the God Almighty. Because of our faith in Christ, this passage calls us to pass on this faith to the generations to come so that their hearts might follow Jesus, so they might teach the next generation about God's faithfulness to them in Christ. And guess what? He uses those who are weak. He uses those who are broken and have a lot of sin in their lives. He uses those whose families act like they're all sewn up. He actually even uses good families. If this is not your heritage, start today. Claim the goodness of God that is for your families, that's found in his word. It's not too late. God has promised his faithfulness to you. And he has revealed it in Christ. I met with someone this week and they told me that he did not remember a time in his life that he didn't know the Lord. Praise the Lord for his heritage. Praise the Lord. That is how it is supposed to work. Our work is cut out for us. But there's help. Because God has sent his helper. We've all taken baptismal vows in this church. Some of us as parents, if you're a member here, as a member you have taken baptismal vows to help parents raise their children in the knowledge of their sin and of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is our calling together. that our lives might reveal what we truly believe about Christ. This passage tells us about Ezra's line, and this passage also tells us about Ezra's life. So we have some students that are getting ready to go to college, or maybe you're starting a new job, and at at college you go through new student orientation, right, where they have someone come teach you everything you need to know about where you're going. If you're starting a new job, it's the same you probably watched 20 hours of videos. This is how you are a good employee um, at this workplace. Well, see, in Ezra, people weren't sent somewhere to learn about where they were going. God sent Ezra to the people. And it's important to remember this because this is a new generation coming out of Babylon. They've never lived in Jerusalem before. They've never lived near the temple before. They don't know the tradition. Remember, last time was the first time they celebrated the Sabbath in over 100 years. Now it's been 150 years, and we have a new group coming to Jerusalem. And God sent Ezra to teach them, this is the way that we do things. If you think of a reformer like Luther or Calvin, Twingley or Knox, Tyndall or Huss, the Jewish tradition holds Ezra as the greatest reformer of all. And if you read through the text, it it makes sense. 
it says twice that the hand of the Lord was with him. This is a refrain we'll see throughout the rest of Ezra. And this is the same refrain that we saw throughout Exodus as God led the people through Moses. God was teaching his people how to be his people again. And what does he do? He sends someone who has set his heart to study, to do, and to teach the heart or to teach the law of God. Ezra is meant to be a model for us. And more specifically, Ezra is a model for John and myself. Not all of you were called as your job to study the law of God. Well, guess what? That is what John and I actually have been called to do as our job. This is a great text for preachers and for ministers. Ezra was called to learn God's word, to study God's word, and to exemplify God's word to walk in the truth that he proclaimed as he preached, to demonstrate his godliness wherever he went, whomever he met with, wherever he went out to eat. And this has been a real struggle for me this week. Because I ask myself, how do I follow after Ezra's footsteps? Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. And I have to sit, and I sat, and I reflected on myself. Is this what I'm about? And I had to say no. This isn't, is the, this isn't at, what, at the core of my heart. And I had to repent of my sin. There's some good days, but I had to admit that I have failed, I have fallen short, and that I have sinned, and I am sorry. Because this is what I proclaim, right? I proclaim that the word of God is what changes us, and I don't believe it every day. This is also a passage, I'm not letting you off the hook. This is also a passage for our elders. If you go to 1 Timothy 3 and to 1 Peter 5, you'll see a pretty good description of what an elder looks like in the church. To fulfill either of those descriptions, one must know the law of God. Because without the law of God, without knowing how to reflect the Creator, our elders have no hope. You guys aren't off the hook either. In Ephesians 4, this is how what Paul describes of the church. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Then in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify to the Lord, that you must no longer work, walk as the Gentiles do in their futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of your life, and is corrupt and defiled, to be renewed in the spirit and your, of your minds, and to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, Ezra is a model for us. But we are not Ezra. Because Ezra pointed to one greater than us who dedicated his life to revealing the word of God because he was the word of God made flesh. And without him, we have no hope. God sent us help, and his name is Jesus. Just as Ezra taught the new people of Israel in their new land how to be Israel, Christ teaches us through his word how we are to be remade in the image of him. There's a book, new book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And Dane Ortland in that book gives us a wonderful picture of the heart of Jesus. And he claims that there is only one passage in all of Scripture that actually reveals to us the heart of Jesus. And it's Matthew 11, 28-30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, lean, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the only place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and we see him at his core. My point is this. If it's up to me, it's up to you, and if it's up to our elders, we will fall short of the glory of God and the one who calls us to follow after him. But what the scriptures reveal about Jesus is that he sees us in our sin and he actually moves towards us. He does not reject us. At the heart of Jesus is compassion for those who are burdened by their sin, who have been hurt, who have been broken, and he does not turn us away, and he is not overwhelmed by us. He sees us as we are, and he says, it is you I have chosen.
one of the biggest sins we project on Jesus is that he doesn't want to be near us. It is to be near us is why he came. And this is why we come to the table. Because as I said in the beginning, this table is not a celebration of what we have done. But it's a celebration that God came to us to forgive us of our sins and calls us to come to him and find life. That is our only hope.